This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, November 16th of 2017, it's episode 122. In this episode, part two of our discussion of battered group syndrome, plus more facilitator jokes at Jenny's expense, gaming speed dating, and more. Hey folks, just a heads up for any new listeners, this is the second half of a two-part episode on battered group syndrome. If you haven't heard the first half yet, or just want to refresh your memory, please make sure to listen to episode 121 before you continue on. Thanks. Well, and that kind of leads us into, there's a there's another situation. <laughs> I think we should, we're ready to get into this long-term negatives thing, because there's another situation that just came up in this, and... Now we're really going to have to rely on the fact that your wife doesn't listen to the podcast because this is information she doesn't have. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And if our third anonymous player listens, he should be able to handle it. Yeah. (laughs) So we wrapped up a dungeon crawl last session. First of all, the dungeon itself was a form of treasure, which I think was a lot of fun. Turns out when a colony is desperately in need of resources, an iron mine is awesome. Yes. (laughs) I mean, yes, it's an iron mine that had a bunch of ghasts and ghouls and I mean, it's got an opening down to the Underdark. Ricks and Grells and... <laughs> and yeah, I mean, there's a troll refuse pile. There are some problems. Mm. Yeah. It's, fi- it's fine. I'm sure it's it's a fixer-upper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's more of a faller-downer, but we can still work with this. It's got good bones. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's got a lot of good bones. You've seen them. Yeah. <laughs> Most of them in the troll lair, although we've left a few scattered around now, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it does also have a bit of a fungus problem. Yeah. But nothing a good fire can't fix in an enclosed space with limited oxygen. Wait, what? <laughs> Are we just going to, like, badly describe the last couple of sessions now? Is that I mean, we might do? as well. But anyway, the, the point is, um, one of the little bits in there was, oh, hey, you found a treasure chest that somebody had hidden. Their story, tie-ins, etc. doesn't really matter, but there was a hidden treasure chest. It had some some loot in it including some magic items, which are great. A cloak of resistance, which is good for anybody who's got it, and a magic sword. Everybody loves a magic sword. Peter, what's the problem with that magic sword? Problem with that magic sword is that it's cursed. And who Um, has that magic sword right now? Lambert does. And Lambert is your character, just to be clear. he is, yes. Lambert is my PC. This is on Lambert's character sheet. D&D 5e has flaws. When the lowly are oppressed, justice must be uncompromising. Open parentheses, Lambert essentially becomes lawful neutral in his attitude towards you if you're oppressing people, which you have seen with Anti-Bloat and the Grungs. He becomes a much less nice person in those situations where you've got slavers and that sort of thing. Grant, what type of sword is this? What what exactly is the nature of the curse on this sword? Well, I mean, it's it's got a... A little bit of a problem with a spirit of vengeance living in it who occasionally wants to take over you and make you angry and uh, vengeful. Ooh. It's, it's a small problem. It's it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's <laughs> totally fine. The, this, so we've got something that feeds directly into one of Lambert's actual character flaws here. Yes. And thank mm. goodness for dice rollers and random treasure generators that come up with goodies like this. So mm. after the last session, which is where this thing came up in the first place... Grant and I had a little bit of a conversation about this, and actually, 
We probably went on for a good half hour or so swatting ideas around, wouldn't you say? Uh, I wouldn't say a half minutes? hour, but yeah, it was, 15 it was minutes at or least so. 15. This is a sign of when things are actually starting to take a turn for the better. Because in a previous game where there was just way too much like screw job stuff going on, I would have been just like, okay, well, I'm going to just re- prepare remove curse at the beginning of the next session and you can't stop me. <laughs> In this particular case, we had a conversation about how long do we want to allow this to go on? You know, what kind of narrative beats do we want to hit with this? I mean, we really sat there and spitballed back and forth for a while. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I was nervous about this. This felt like a little bit of a gamble to me. And and that's one reason why I said, hey, Peter, let's talk about this. Yeah. I mean, I trust you to be like, oh, hey, the sword is cursed, but... I didn't feel super comfortable just like randomly making you roll will saves or wisdom saves and, and things like that. You know, just I, I, it didn't feel comfortable. It didn't sit right with me. So right after the game, I was like, hey, Peter, stick around on the hangout for a second. And I told you up front, this is what's going on with this sword. I want you to know this should not be a long term thing. Like I envision this lasting three or four sessions at most. So first of all, we've established this is not some sort of permanent screw you. Yeah. This is, here is a problem that you will have to deal with. How would you like to handle it? Because the other thing I said was, I don't want to have to do any role playing with this. I would love it if this all came from you, which sounds yeah. like work for the player. Like, oh, well, I'm putting this all on you. But it's it's liberating because I am not saying your character does something you did not expect. And I'm ripping agency away from you and I'm ripping control away for a second. Yeah, this is this is almost um, in a way you almost gave me like a temporary fate aspect with this thing. Yeah, I'm hmm. giving you more spotlight time. This is going to be an interesting thing about Lambert for a while. Yeah. And considering how contemplative and tough on himself Lambert is, this may be something that has long term consequences, even if he doesn't do anything particularly bad. I, I suspect it'll have long term internal consequences and it yeah. may cause some issues with some relationships with other NPCs. Certainly, it'll have some interesting consequences, I hope, in relationships with the other player characters. We'll see yeah. what happens. I don't know. I'm leaving it entirely open for you to, to figure out. I suspect it actually. OK, so I'm going to make a prediction up front. Just given the way that the, the, the nature of the group dynamics, Lambert has spent a lot of the campaign just kind of taking care of people, wouldn't you say? Uh, that is specifically what his character does. Yes. Yeah, this may be one of the few times in the whole game where he really needs the other party members to do that for him. And I'm interested to see how that plays out, especially out of combat. Yes. Yeah, that's very true. Here's the thing. This is a case where I am specifically trusting you to role play this and not making it something I'm springing on you. You understand why this is happening. This is not, oh, you got to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain charm in a group that trusts the GM to, huh, something is weird. I don't know what it is. My character and I get to figure that out together. There's a certain charm to that. It's a mystery. Yeah. But that is not a story you can safely tell. That's not a, a storytelling experience you can safely have in a group where there is no trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I think even in a group where there is trust, like the one that we have, I think a lot of the time, I don't want to say mysteries are overrated because they're not. But I, I think making everything a mystery is perhaps overrated. The the beetle was a mystery, you know, figuring stuff out is fun. But sometimes with things like this, you'll have a situation where and this goes back to a lot of the stuff we've been giving advice about. 
handing narrative control over to players is often good. Co-opting players to make your world better and more interesting is often good. This is doing multiple of those things at the same time. Yeah. And even though this is going to be rough for Lambert, I personally am kind of looking forward to seeing how this plays out, what Grant puts in the story to bring this to the fore, what the other player characters do about this. And I'm already trying to think of, well, (laughs) it's getting pretty close to game day, but like right after we finished with that conversation, I started the process of thinking about, okay, what kind of tells can I give him that some, you know, that will let the other players know that something is off with this guy almost immediately. I I think it's going to be a fun couple of sessions. I really do. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It is a storytelling opportunity rather than a a hit job on a character. Yep. Or a player. Let's move on a little bit. Jenny, Mm -hmm. tell me, you ever had a player character die? Yes. At my request. I don't think I've ever actually had a player character die not at my request. Okay, that's fair. Did the GM ever make you start at zero XP and level one? Uh, almost. Um, when the character died at my request, he was like, fine, go make a new one at not quite zero XP, but like we'd started the game at fifth level and we're now at like 12th level. And he was mm-hmm. like, right, you start a little lower level than everybody else. And it was it was a little grudging. Was that grudging particularly nice? No. It felt bad. It It felt real bad. (laughs) Yeah. Listen, the classic, oh, you start at level one with zero XP is kind of the worst case of it. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to have player continuity and an equitable player agency in a system where level and like totals of accrued XP or skill points or whatever matter, don't punish players for Mm -hmm. something you did. (laughs) Yeah. At least let them remake the PC, because if I recall, in that instance, I did not get to ma- remake my own PC. Um, oh. It was made for wow. me. Wow. Oh, that's that's much worse. This, okay, this yeah. group, I've got stories about this group that I would like to reserve for the uh, abusive groups episode that we've been planning for a while. So, Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> PC mortality matters in some games, and that's fine. There are some games where it is the story of a a large group of people doing things and some of them die along the way. I mean, Fire Emblem is that oh, in yeah. video game form and it works fine. Valkyria it, Chronicles too. Yeah, there yeah. are all sorts of these. But when you lose someone, remember there's a player who has to sit around and if you if you punish the player for something that happens in game by making whatever they replace that dead character with less effective, less able to act, less successful, that's always going to be frustrating. Yeah, and not towards any useful end either. I mean, mm-hmm. once again, this is a hobby. You know, the the whole goal here is to have fun. So deliberately making it so somebody stops having fun because something happened in the fiction is unnecessary. Exactly. Another thing to think about, when a player character dies, that's a highlight moment for that character, not a sad trombone ending. Yeah, you talked about this quite a bit in the Exo Squad stuff that you did at Gameable, and I we thought did. that was full, very full credit interesting. to Chris for this one, actually. Yeah, uh, for for really pulling this to the fore. The idea here is that when a player character dies, they should get a moment to be awesome, to mm-hmm. go out with a bang. Maybe, um, okay, the character you know is dead. They hit zero hit points. Well, maybe they take some of the guy, bad guys with them and disappear under a pile, but let the rest of the party escape. Or they fly their mech 
or fighter or into the alien ship and blow it up. The thing is, kind of at that point, the rules go out the window. The PC is dead. They're going to die in this scene. Let's give them some cool way to die or something cool they do before they die. Some last moments, some last words. It's a focal point for that character and a way to remember that character at the pinnacle of whatever that character is before you set it aside and say, well, they're done. Yeah. Enjoy that. Highlight it rather than, well, well, your character's dead. Leave the table. Stop having fun. Go make another one (laughs) or worse. Mm -hmm. Leave the table for the night. Yeah. Go do your math homework and come back with another freshly made character sheet that's going to take you a significant amount of time. Yeah. That's the other thing. Like if you've got a crunchy system. Having to sit down and make another character at whatever level the party is at is plenty of punishment on its own, and it's oh, in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. There's a lot of bookkeeping that you've got to come up with a new concept. You have to figure out, you know, what you can do to start making that player build bridges with all of these other people in the party. That's a big deal. Yeah. Death need not be instantaneous as well. A little shout out to a excellent GM, Michael Matthews, uh, oh, yes. who's a, a booter who runs all sorts of wonderful games. Um, when I was at Fear the Con 5, I was in a Dread game. About halfway through, we had the tower fall, which, of course, is supposed to mean a, a character dies. Well, but we were about halfway through this con game. And Michael, like any smart GM, said, I don't want this player sitting around bored or just done with my game. So this uh, this was a zombie scenario, zombie survival. We were in, I don't know, like the Indiana State dorms or something like that, trying to get up onto the roof. I, I don't know the area, but it was this big tower of dorms, and we were working our way up these zombie-infested ones because we, there was a survivor enclave at the very top, up where, like, a cafeteria was. Okay. The way that we narrated it, like, we get to the top, and there, we had to do one last thing, and uh, the tower fell when this particular player pulled a block. So what he ruled it as was um, we get to the top, and a scared survivor fired a shotgun through the door and gut shot this particular player character. But we got him inside once we realized, oh, you know, once they realized, oh, these are survivors rather than zombies and they got him bandaged up. So for the rest of the session, that character was still present and the GM or the, the, the player of that character could still do things with the understanding that they were, quote unquote, dead. Any time that player would pull a block, that would be the last thing that that character could do. The exertion would kill them. But they could still talk to everyone and they could still role play being a wounded burden on all the other survivors. Hmm. So imagine that in the middle of a, a D&D session, right? It takes a while to roll up even a fifth edition character. Goodness knows it takes a while to do with a 3.5 character. Yeah. So what if your dead character is instead mortally wounded and slowly dying, but the rest of the party is hauling them around and dealing with them? You still get to have that character present for the rest of the night, and you wrap up the session that evening with that character dying and having their last words. And that gives you plenty of time to come back with a new character or whatever, but you all get to close on that dramatic moment. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they managed to save them somehow, which is also cool. That might also be cool. It depends on what you want to do. I'm not going to judge one way or another. But the point is, this is a moment of drama, and it's okay for the rules to be set aside for a little bit in order to get good story. Yeah. A character dying is good story. A character pulling through at the last moment can be good story. It's whatever works and doesn't feel bad at the table. 
And you know something else? A bunch of people banding together to try and save their mortally wounded friend, whether they succeed or not, is real good story. And that is that comes from the players rather than the than GM. The GM. Yep. <laughs> I think to tie into this earlier, I mentioned that the motivations behind player actions is really important. Like, why are things done? When you ask why things are done, if the excuse is, oh, but the realism, that is not necessarily always a good excuse. To me, at least, fun should always trump realism or group tradition or momentum within the game. Fun should always trump that. And it should certainly trump system tradition. Yes. It's your game. You play it how you want to. (laughs) Yeah. Realism is a big old slippery slope, just to be clear, because a lot of what people think of as realism is really is nothing like. And realism, especially in genre storytelling, is kind of a nonsensical statement anyway. Yeah. Believability, plausibility. Yeah. But realism is a bit of a consistency even. Yeah. (laughs) Now, but you're, you're absolutely right, Jenny. If, well, we've always done it this way is the excuse. Well, that that's not satisfactory. That is unsatisfactory. That's not at all satisfactory. Exactly right. In so many contexts, but especially in gaming. The other <laughs> thing I want to point out, by the way, if something bad happens to a player character, GMs should never gloat about it. Remember, no. you are on the PCs and players side, not your side where all the monsters and antagonists are. If something bad happens to a character, that is a procedural or dramatic downbeat for everyone at the table, not some sort of zero sum game victory. Yeah. If you feel the need to unironically mwahahahahaha at any point, that's that's not that's not good. It's not cool. Yeah. I mean, unless you're the sort of horrible villain who uses words like funcilitator, then <laughs> at, at that point, you know, a proper mwahahahaha may be appropriate, but it needs to be in character. Yeah. One of the other things that I, I do want to bring up here and is the actually, idea of a supervillain called the Funcilitator, because that's where my <laughs> mind is right now. <laughs> well, OK, I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> this is this is a good tonal shift from last episode. We were well, we were angry the whole time. Yeah. So uh, anyway, um, I actually want to give Jenny's mom some credit here. I have been in four different con games run by Shannon Dixon at this point. Never once have I ever felt like my player was in mortal danger at all. Never once have I walked away from one of those games without my voice trashed in a big old smile on my face. And I think a lot of the time people in this hobby confuse drama and challenge with high grim stakes and they are totally separate concepts. That's true. You can have the lowest stakes, a pair of cufflinks or something like that, and it can be incredibly dramatic and tense. You can have an absolutely ridiculous story about the end of the world. And I think one of the things that she does with that, and I mean, she can correct me if I'm wrong here, but she makes the stakes not the player's life, but consequences for the environment at large or consequences for the group. She she doesn't make the consequences mortal dire consequences. They are certainly important, but they are not world-shatteringly important. Well, I think also one of the things that uh, your mom does very well is that the consequences are not direct losses for the mm-hmm. player characters and thus the players. Yeah. 
failure does not somehow like subtract from your character's score in a way. Yeah. And and likewise, success doesn't really either. Like success is being generous, helping other mm-hmm. people. The character doesn't get a whole lot out of it in a lot of the games that I've seen her her do, but it's neat. It's fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a very specific style to a, a Shannon Dixon game that I almost feel like we should just have her on and pick her brain about her GMing technique someday, but... I'm sure she'd be happy. That would be fun. <laughs> we may need right. to do that sooner rather than later. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> we, have, we have more outline to get to here. We do, so. and it's it's been... A, we are well over our hour mark already. Oh, yeah. we are. Um, a couple other notes. We talked about priorities, game life balance, as it were. You know, if people are late or tardy to a game or, you know, having issues, they didn't do their homework, whatever, it's a hobby chill it's cool yeah you have two options in that case you can shrug it off and do nothing about it and accept that's how it is or you can have an adult conversation with them about it if it's starting to cause a problem yeah Mm -hmm. but again we talked about that last episode but (laughs) yeah just wanted to mention it again because if the group is expecting consequences for that that is kind of a problem let's talk about fudging die rolls this is one of the things that a GM can do to kind of play into that role of the characters and players fan, helping them tell a good story. Here's the thing. A lot of people throw a fit about this because they kind of assume that fudging a die roll immediately opens the floodgates and all, you know, all roles are thereafter unfair. Mm-hmm. Right. That's not necessarily true. Yeah. It's the whole idea of you lied, therefore you cheated. Yeah. Here's the thing. There are dice rolls that I have fudged in our game. They were largely fudged to end something that was already over. Yeah. Uh, Let me tell you, there are only three characters in this player group. Every single combat, a monster is left at one HP for the whole round. (laughs) It's so consistent. Every (laughs) time. And it happened last session, too. It did. I don't know how you that manage one it. one ghoul. <laughs> just... The funny thing, okay, the funny thing is, too, is not only was this thing at one HP, it was standing inside the radius of a spirit guardian spell, which meant that as soon as the start of its next, you know, round in the initiative came around, it was going to take 3d8 radiant damage and die. Yeah. <laughs> but it was the fighter's turn before that. <laughs> yeah. It was just like, oh, please come on. Right. And sometimes I'll <laughs> let you guys do it because like we, we were wrapping. It was the last fight of this whole dungeon crawl. Let's let the fighter have that cool moment where he lands the final blow. Neat. Yeah. Other times I have said, oh, can you please find one point of damage somewhere? <laughs> oh, no. You know I'm- what? It died. You killed it. Good job, you. Tell me how it happened. (laughs) I've had a GM at one point ask me, give me a good reason why I should give you a plus one bonus to that roll. Yes, and it's exactly that. The point is, let's have fun. Let's not make, because let's be be honest, D&D combat, even in 5th edition, can be a little tedious, okay? And combat in many games is fairly tedious, So anything to speed that up, anything to hit the point of, all right, you guys won. Good job. Let's wrap it up. Anything you can do helps that out. And, you know, make it kind of a fun moment. I like the idea of, you know, give me a reason you killed this thing, even though the dice technically say you shouldn't have. What Mm -hmm. cool thing did you do? I love that. That's that's great. In my case, it was I get a plus one bonus because I'm really angry this time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you know what? The GM let me, so I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I have also fudged die rolls to avoid TPKs because that wouldn't have been very much fun. Yeah. Looking at how, you know, things were kind of set up narratively, there was no good reason for them to to live if everyone in the party went down to zero hit points and, and started making death saves. Like, this was not a case of something would, you know, knock them out and then wander off. So I've had to occasionally fudge a die roll because it wouldn't have been interesting if I didn't. And I think that's the key thing. I'm okay with fudging a die roll if it makes things more interesting. This is not saying I'm putting bumpers on everything and making sure nobody hits their weeded head. Exactly. Yeah, like that moment with the Banshee, if Lambert had missed his save on that, that would have just been game over at that it point. It would have. Yeah. And I, I fortunately Lambert did make his save on that. Or I would have frankly gone outside the rules and said, all right, let's figure out some way for this Banshee that wants to kill all of you to not do that. Yeah, and I th- I think the turn undead that he did in response to that worked a little bit better than it should have. Technically, no. But here's the thing, though. I did like that, you know, it fled far away because what that turned it into was this is so much scarier than it actually is. I'm going to get these folks back on their feet and we are all booking it and we are running. This is super scary. Yeah, this turned into this tense chase across the island back to the boat and the things showed up on the shore and like. Yeah, kind of like- hit hit the edge of where it could go out to sea and things like that. that Yeah, that was like a legitimate like horror movie kind of a moment there where, you know, you're just trying to get away from the monster. Right. But so you know what? It could have caught up with you on the island. Yeah. And we're going to go back and end that thing someday. (laughs) Well, yeah, but here's the thing. I definitely made sure that that turned into a chase rather than it catches up to you in 12 rounds. And like, then you're all dead. Well, it, it wouldn't even matter. It's just like, okay, now we're back in combat. No, the chase turned out to be much more interesting. You guys being terrified of this thing was so much more fun than let's have another combat. Yeah. And frankly, I mean, it's a banshee. If you can't be scared of one of those, what are you doing? Right. You know, the the whole thing of that monster is that it's so scary that it literally scares you to death. Yeah. So... So here's the thing. The, the point of what we're saying is not, oh, aren't we good GMs and good players? The point yeah. is, it's okay to do this. You don't have to go by the rules every single time. The narrative is important. The player's enjoyment is important. And cheating once or twice to make a better game does not invalidate everything past and future that you will do in that game. Yeah, I think that the thing that sometimes people forget is that games are part literature and part math. Yes. And if you completely dispense with the literature part of it in favor of the math, you're not going to have nearly as rich and vibrant an experience as you could if you hung on to it. Mm-hmm. The same can often be true of the math. Yeah. Well, and, and also, I want to stress that if you do do this every time, it's going to cheapen your game yeah. because everything there will be no consequence. But there are also times when it's like, this is what the dice say. You guys need to deal with the systemic consequences that you signed up for. Yeah. You know, I've done that plenty of times in the D&D game. We had kind of a half in and half out of character argument about going and taking on those undead at the end of the dungeon because Lambert was out of spells and I wasn't super happy about going in in that situation. But the rest of the group was like, no, we can handle it. And they were right for the record. (laughs) And so we did. But I was kind of like, if this goes south in a big way, I cannot pull us out of the fire like I usually do. I am out of resources. Oh, you guys were scared, and I was not letting you... I was not going to let you do a a long rest to recover everything. Yeah. Short rest, yeah, sure, fine. But, you know, part of a dungeon crawl is resource management, and that moment of, we don't have much left, 
And here's the big bad. Yeah, that actually turned into a really cool combat, but we're running long anyways, so I should mm-hmm. I should well, stop right, but, talking but about again, last game session. <laughs> the challenge of that still is important, right? Yes. I did not fudge and be like, you kill all the, uh, the guests while they're still in their coffins and nothing matters. Yeah. But the important thing was I made sure the group had fun. Yep. Rather than springing the guests on you while you were resting and not letting you rest. Or yeah. uh, there are 30 guests. You know, none of that. You guys saw what you were up against, had to make a tough decision with freely provided information. Yep. And part of the reward, like the reward for the players was succeeding with the consequences of the decision that you guys made. Yeah. Well, and it was one of those things, too, where it was like we kind of pulled together and we're like, okay, we can do this. We got to be careful about it, but we can do this. And Yeah. You felt smart. You felt tough. That was fun. All right. Last thing. We've talked about grace in the previous episode. Demonstrate grace at the table. I'm going to hit that point over and over again. Be gracious to the other players. Do not be cruel. Do not be vindictive. Do not be antagonistic. Be generous. You are there for them. You are a host and players should certainly do this as well. And by the way, exhibit that same behavior away from the table. This is not just a GMing advice. This is advice that Christians live by. Grace and mercy. (laughs) Read Mm -hmm. most of Paul's letters, honestly, (laughs) to find more scripture on this topic. Yeah. Let's talk about long-term treatment of this particular problem, right? All of what we've talked about has been ways to handle this in the short term, to earn some trust back, to to deal with specific situations, particular trust issues. Let's talk about long-term treatment for battered group syndrome. First and most important thing, be consistent. Trust is earned over a long period of time. If you're trying to get people to lower their guard and trust you to play fairly with them, you're going to have to be trustworthy and consistent and fair and open, not just in the first session, not just in the first game, but over a long period of time. It's going to take twice as long to earn back that trust and get those behaviors to go away than it did to form those habits in the first place. And by the way, this applies even if you weren't the one who lost the trust in the first place. Oh, absolutely. Which is not fair, but it is absolutely the way human psychology works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you are that GM, it's going to take longer. And I'll tell you right now, you can't do this in secret. You need to have a talk with your players and say, hey, listen, I've realized I have not been a good GM. I'm going to make these changes. I would like it if you worked with me to help me build up these good GMing habits which hopefully will improve our game and help you feel less uncomfortable at the game and enjoy the game more. You're going to have to to take that first step if you're the one who's who's caused the problems in the first place. This is standard for trying to fix problems in any relationship. The person at fault needs to be the first one to back down and open up and say, I am sorry. A good heartfelt apology saying, I am sorry. I repent of this behavior and I'm going to try and do differently going forward. This is what I'm going to do. That is invaluable, and that has to come from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are a GM who's picked up this battered group somewhere along the way, being reassuring and open about what you're seeing does go a long way. Yeah, set set some clear ground rules that emphasize enjoyment and creativity over proving how hardcore everybody is. Uh, make every effort not to take things personally and decide up front that... Uh, you know that whole meth not even once thing? <laughs> Taking grudges out on people in-game, not even not once. Even. 
solicit feedback and try to act on it. This is one place where I'm really going to give Grant some props is there have been a few sessions where things have actually gone well and we've sat around and dissected why things went well, or if something didn't quite work, we've tried to figure out why that is. And this is something that you may not be able to do right away. You have to have a certain baseline of trust built up. But once you get to that point, this will be part of a virtuous cycle that helps build it to higher levels. And it also gives you good feedback as to, hey, what is my group like so I can do more of that? What is my group not like so I can do less of that? You know? Yeah. When people want to stick around after the game to talk about the game, even if it's to talk about problems they're having with it, that's a sign that things are starting to be good because they they're not in the, the mindset of I need to get away from this GM as fast as possible. Yeah. You know, the the thing that made me, I think, probably the angriest in recent times that I've seen in a specifically in a tabletop gaming group on Facebook was a GM came in and said, hey, one of my players asked for me to put more detail into my game. What kind of suggestions do you all have? You know, asking this question in good faith. Sure. There was so much advice to just like kill the player character off in a really detailed and gruesome way. And it's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand how good that kind of feedback is. Mm -hmm. If somebody comes to you with that sort of thing, don't take that as an insult. That is a diamond somebody just handed you. Polish that sucker up and let it shine, you know? Someone trusted you enough to give you feedback in the first place, which is, I know for me, a huge thing. And they were specific enough about it that to make it and you want to take that to heart like that's such a good environment that you fostered there keep that up yeah they are engaged enough to want to improve the game yeah awesome yeah yeah and i mean i that particular um request is basically hey tell me more about your awesome game world yeah you're not telling me enough about it yeah Mm -hmm. and it may be you know hey i'm having trouble visualizing what's going on in the game that's also valuable Mm -hmm. yeah negative i hate to say it negative feedback and constructive criticism is much more valuable than a pat on the back it is yeah Mm -hmm. harder to stomach sometimes because it's easy to take things personally and you know take constructive criticism as as nitpicking or a personal attack listen to it carefully set that mindset aside hear what your players are asking for maybe you know try and get clarification if it's not particularly clear i'll be honest sometimes i've tried to give feedback myself and not been entirely clear on what my problem actually was it happens. Yeah. And, and it, it happens in my job your finger all the time. Sometimes. You yeah. Know, I, I mean, here's the thing. I do support for a living software support. I get people complaining all the time. Hey, such and such isn't working. I'm having such and such problem. I'd like such and such feature. Half of the time, they're really asking for something else. Like half the time I want this is really I'm trying to do X. The only way I can think of is this process I've laid out. My job then is to parse that and say, oh, I see what you're really trying to do or get feedback from them and say, can you tell me why you want to do this process? What are you actually trying to accomplish? And then once it's clear what they're actually trying to accomplish, what their business need is, I can turn that into a feature request that actually solves the problem. So make it a back and forth. Ask questions if you need clarification. That's important. Don't just uncritically make changes based on everything any single player says. And that's kind of dangerous advice that can turn into don't listen to your players. Do listen to your players, but try and dig a little deeper because they may not know exactly what they want when they say it. Try and tease out what they're actually wanting out of your game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A couple other things, and these are in extremis steps that you can take. 
if you are the GM who is the source of some of these problems, maybe take a break for a little while. Let someone else GM. Maybe take a break from the group. Try some different kinds of gaming. Try different kinds of games, like, you know, different computer games or something. Uh, it, Peter, I think you've got a term here, like uh, walking simulators. Yeah, things like Gone Home. You know what? I actually have a better piece of advice, though. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be a really bizarre deep cut from me, but... I can't believe I'm actually going to say this in an RPG podcast, but find the 1985 Anne of Green Gables movie and watch it. Okay. Because there is an enormous amount of drama, character development, plot, and there's no meat grinder aspect to it at all. You have people confronting their own prejudices. You have relationships evolving, people growing and changing, and especially if you can find this, the follow-on movies from that. I, I know it's bizarre, but I think it's something that a lot of GMs, especially if they're used to just kind of stereotypical D&D kinds of games, really owe it to themselves to find something that is wholly different to go and look at and consume. And that's just the one that pops into my brain. You know, this is exactly why we keep uh, recommending Stardew Valley. Yeah, yeah, it is. A, it's a very satisfying game where you you there's this positive cycle of investment where you know your farm is growing and you're you're getting to be a, a more awesome farmer and miner and fisher and so on. Great. The thing is, aside from the mining mini game, there's no danger to your character, but there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of storytelling that happens. And there's real connection that happens in that game, even though there's no threat to any character at all. Yeah, mm-hmm. just just to kind of drive this home a little bit, if you get quote-unquote killed in the mines, you will be rescued by the villains. Yeah. Yep. I mean, they'll you're, charge you. Yeah, your life will be <laughs> saved. They will charge you not what I would consider to be a terribly exorbitant fee for going down into this dangerous mine and saving you. Oh, speak for yourself. That one hurt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It, yeah, it there does are vary. It does vary in intensity. If, it's, if it starts, if it starts to snowball on you, it can get bad. But like the mm-hmm. first time, it's just like, wow, really? Okay. <laughs> oh, the yeah. worst thing for me is when I uh, died in the mines and lost three of my tools. Oh, oh, yeah, that one. That's that, a rough one. That was bad. But the point stands. You know, I'm being a little pedantic here just for conversation, but you're absolutely right. There are minimal consequences for failure in that game. And even, you know, the quote unquote violent part of the game where you're kind of doing a, a very basic dungeon crawl kind of thing in a very, very mild roguelike has no bearing on the dramatic action happening elsewhere in the game. Mm-hmm. Yep. And apart from video games, I think one of the biggest things as a player that helped me get over a significant amount of battered group syndrome was going to a convention Mm. because that's like speed dating for games. And you get a fair number of games in a very short amount of time. You get to see a wide variety of GMing styles, a wide variety of games and systems and so on and so forth in a very short time span. So if you can, get yourself to a convention and just see what else is out there and see what you like, what you don't like, what other people around the table seem to like and engage with. Um, Maybe go with somebody else from your group and after the convention, do sort of what my mom and I did in our most recent bonus episode and just talk about what you did and didn't like about the games that you played. That's a really good idea. 
if you go to a fear the con, yes. um, I would say reach out to us directly yeah. if you're going to do that, because we will be able to recommend specific GMs based on the types of games that you like to play that you will absolutely love the experience of being in the games mm-hmm. of. I will counter that a little bit. Okay. Reach out to us and we will suggest GMs who run games wildly different from what you usually play. Yeah. I think you can do both at the same time, but go ahead. The greatest improvement I ever uh, had when I was learning to be a GM, like the the most I ever learned in the shortest period of time, was going to Fear the Con 5 and playing no games that I had any experience with whatsoever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I got to try all sorts of things. Interestingly, you know how we were talking about habits? I had a lot of bad habits because all, all I'd really been playing was like Shadowrun and D&D. And maybe I don't remember even if this is when I was playing Mage or not. That was kind of all I had. When I sat down to play games that didn't have any of those habits ready and waiting for me, I was suddenly a much better role player. Like, forget GM. I was having fun role playing and I, I didn't really like role playing a whole lot. I didn't really like talking in character. I was going full out in character as much as I could, being silly or serious, whatever the game required, being as deep into the game as I possibly could because I didn't have any of the hangups that said, oh, no, 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 this, we don't we don't role play here. We, we yeah. don't talk in character. <laughs> I think the furthest I ever got into a character was that very first trouble with Rose game that Shannon ran. I was that crazy mouse with a near perfect moral compass and no common sense whatsoever for a <laughs> while. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. you know, my first game at Fear the Con, if I remember correctly, was Derek Knudsen's uh, Soul Calibur Anger Management Therapy game. Huh. Which you have talked about <laughs> on innumerable occasions, and I really wish I had seen. It was delightful, especially <laughs> since my character communicated entirely through hand motions and hissing. Because <laughs> I was playing Voldo, who is creepy. Anyway, I think that's probably where we should wrap this up. Yeah, especially since this is in danger of becoming a two-parter. Yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah. Thank you, both of you, for sticking around this long. I appreciate oh, it. Yes. <laughs> right back at you. It'll probably edit down pretty good. We've had a bunch of digressions and interruptions eh, and stuff that can be cut. Not, not that much. Not that much. No Blarry. Oh, he came <laughs> through. It was just while you were talking, so I didn't interrupt. Oh, mm. well. You'll hear him I didn't hear track. him. I could only hear the sound of my own voice, like a proper <laughs> podcaster. <laughs> anyway, if anybody else has suggestions on how to handle this, we'd love to hear them. We'd love to share them around with everyone else. Uh, you can, of course, join us in our Discord channel, which is linked on our webpage. You can hit us up on uh, Facebook, Twitter, a few other places. And, of course, leave comments on particular episodes. That's also great. And if you like what we do here, rate and review us on iTunes. Rate and review us on Facebook. That's a thing you can do. Um, mm-hmm. Share us around. That's really the biggest thing. If you like what we do, share us around. Find somebody you like and tell them about us. If you at all think they might like what we do, that would be fantastic. From all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Cannot wait to hear listener feedback on this episode, folks. So take it easy. Get in touch. We'll see you next time. See you later, folks. See ya. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilore.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless. Do good. 
at happygaming.